Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. It's Brady again, joined as always by our senior wine professional, Billy Galenko. Billy, how are you doing? Doing well. It's been a busy couple of weeks. I think you're about to touch on that, but happy to be back on the podcast. Yeah, it has been pretty hectic around here. Billy, you were traveling in Europe, in Bordeaux. Our team was in Oregon just last week meeting with producers, and we'll touch on a lot of that stuff in next week's episode. This week, we have a really great conversation with producer winemaker Josh McDaniels from Bloodstone McDaniels Estates up in Walla Walla in Washington. So we'll get to that conversation here in a little bit. But aside from all of the traveling, we've also sold out two collections pretty recently with really different life cycles on our platform, right? We sold out our Piemonte collection, and we also sold out a recently released Lafitte Rothschild vertical. The Lafitte collection sold out in 58 minutes, whereas our Piemonte collection took several weeks. And I know that it's kind of interesting for investors to see the collections as they tick down, but these were both really great offerings, very different in terms of their asset profiles and the history that these collections and the wines in them have in the marketplace. But we think they're both really awesome offerings. So congrats to everyone who was able to get in. Yeah. Putting it as a understatement a little bit is Piemonte is is way more like Burgundy than it is like Bordeaux. So they were definitely different offerings in that sense. And then also Bordeaux and being Lafitte and being a vertical, it's a single producer for multiple years, um, very different than a, a collection of the, the top producers from another region like Piemonte. So that was really exciting that everybody was able to get in. And yeah, on the Bordeaux side of things, I was there for entrepreneur tasting, basically tasting the wines of 2021, trying to get a sense of what the vintage was like and we have a good sense of that now. And I think those of you may, you know, it's kind of more of wine trade type news, but you might be seeing in the news now prices coming out for the Bordeaux wines of 2021. And they basically every year, people go and taste the industry, the trade journalists go and trade and taste in April. And then May and June are when the prices of the previous year's vintage come out. And they're coming out as we speak. The Larger chateaux tend to be more in the middle or towards the end. We're just at the very beginning of pricing, but Vince always, you know, looking to taste them just like last year, we're, we're planning on potentially having an on-premier collection. So yeah, we, we have our eyes on these prices and it's really exciting time for futures. And along that, we have our own futures offering coming up. We're calling it a Vince on-premier collection. And this is something we're really excited about. This will be out May 20th. It's featuring wines from Joy Fantastic, the 2021, I guess it will be now last year's vintage, Syrah. Joy Fantastic is a wine brand and the wines are made by Amy Christine, master of wine, along with her husband and industry veteran winemaker, Peter Hunkin. Amy is on our advisory board, our wine advisory board, and she's been a great partner to us. And when we were coming up with the ideas trying to do our, our first futures offering. We, we've had interest from a ton of different producers and knowing that we wanted to make sure this first futures collection was highly vetted and the wines were really well-respected and really well-made. We, we went ahead and went with Amy because we've been working with her now for well over a year. She's been advising Vint and we've been able to, to experience her wines and really know the caliber of winemaking and knowledge, you know, being one, being an MW brings to the wines, but also, um, 
the decade plus of experience that Peter Hunkin brings as well. So we're really excited for this collection and it's, it's featuring one of uh, Brady's favorite grapes, Syrah, which is underappreciated, I think, in Santa Barbara, but it's the third most planted grape in Santa Barbara, just behind the famous Pinot and Chardonnay. Many people don't know that, but it's one of the best wines coming out of the region. It's exciting to be able to offer a futures collection featuring Syrah, right? Because typically when we think of futures in the wine world, we're thinking of Bordeaux and Bordeaux varietals, right? So as we continue to explore more producer relationships and have discussions about what futures offerings will look like on the Vint platform, it's kind of unique that we're going to be able to offer futures on Premier type offerings from Europe, from the US, hopefully in the future from all over the place. So a really great opportunity for investors. We've had a lot of people asking about futures and specifically asking about Bordeaux futures, which as Billy said, we'll have in the future, but we should be on the lookout for more and more future type offerings as we continue to grow. Yeah. And, and we'll get in next week a little bit more into the details of this offering. But what's really great about this is, you know, Bordeaux futures, you have to go through this purchasing process of, you know, each chateau has a courtier who then helps them sell wines to negotiants. And then, then from there, people like Vint or other merchants can buy the wine, which this we're going right to the producer. We're getting pricing that's below current retail pricing. And we're, we're kind of having that, that built in bit of margin already for our investors, which is really exciting. And it's one of the benefits of, you know, Vint trying to get closer and closer to the producers, being able to define this different, these different margins and these good prices on wines wherever we can. And futures, right? Like aren't always better or worse qualitatively like investments than, you know, maybe our typical thematic collections. But futures offerings, like Billy said, can offer a little bit more predictability and stability relative to the kinds of prices that they'll command in the future because there is already some built-in value because you're getting it you know, under retail price. I think that provides an opportunity to offer a new variety of risk profiles for our collections, which I think will be really important as investors think about diversifying their portfolios, which is something that we talk a lot about in our education. Yeah. And it's to your point there, the main thing is now we have, we've offered quite an interesting range of offerings, whether it be whiskey, both in cask and in bottle. We had traditional Bordeaux futures. We've had regular thematic collections. And now this is just the next step in our evolution to further searching for the interesting new offerings for our investors and looking for more and more opportunities for, for quality investments. So this is our first and it'll hopefully be the first of many. And we're, we're really excited to bring this to our investors. Yeah. Now we can you know kind of dive into our interview with Josh McDaniels that as we had stated, we recorded previously, and Billy at the time was uh, in Bordeaux during the time of this recording. But it was a great conversation with winemaker Josh McDaniels out of Walla Walla, Washington, the winemaker and on co-labels with former NFL player Drew Bledsoe. So it's Drew Bledsoe's estate out there in Walla Walla, and uh, they now have a joint label called Bledsoe McDaniels. And so Josh is joining us to discuss their projects discuss winemaking generally and his journey into the wine world. He's really accessible. It's a great conversation. We hope you all enjoy. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Excited to be a part of this. This is our second conversation now, and we had a, a great time the last time we chatted. And there were so many projects, individual projects that you're working on, along with Drew Bloodsoe, 
out in Washington State and just wanted to hear a little bit about that. Maybe you can provide a bit of an intro for you specifically, and then maybe a little bit about the projects you're working on at Doubleback and at Bloodsill Wine Estates. For sure. Yeah. So I'm the CEO and director of winemaking for Bloodsill Wine Estates. We're based out of Walla Walla, Washington. We have three wineries that are all kind of roll up into the the Blood So Wine Estates umbrella. Doubleback, which was the original brand, it's a Walla Walla State Crown Cabernet project that was started in 2007. Then uh, 10 years later, we launched Bloodstone Family Winery, which is really just you know, a little bit more of a casual approach to just Walla Walla wines in general. So we make uh, rosé, we make a little Chardonnay, more Cabernet and Syrah. And then just recently, we launched a partnership between Drew and I, uh, Bloodstone McDaniels, which is mostly a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir project that we're super excited about. So our first venture outside of the Walla Walla Valley and down into the state of Oregon and actually heading down there tomorrow to go check out our, our new estate vineyard. So yeah, that's the quick and uh, quick and dirty of, of our business. And it's uh, grown and changed and been just super fun. And we've got a great team. It's just been, you know, a killer, killer few years. It's been a ton of fun. I'll hop in there. For me, I, I watched shows and I didn't really realize where it is in Washington. I didn't really, you know, you don't, when you think of Washington, those people think of Seattle. Could could you kind of give us a sense of where it is in the state? And then I also don't think many people know that, you know, Drew Bledsoe played and he was on the Patriots, but he also is from Walla Walla. I mean, you're also from Walla Walla. So can you kind of give us a sense of where it is in the state and what the climate is on that side of the state? And then, you know, what it's like growing up there and how you got, you know, deeper into wine. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's funny, you know, we sell a lot of wine. We were just talking earlier sell a lot of wine on the East coast and, you know, we, uh, sometimes you get a, you get a phone call and, you know, you say, Oh, we're in, we're in Washington, Washington. And they say, Oh, the capital, you know, no Washington state, we're in Washington state. And they go, Oh, like Seattle, it doesn't rain a lot there. How do you grow Cabernet? And so, yeah, there's, there's those funny stigmas, especially on the East coast uh, that you got to kind of break down, but basically Walla Walla is on the Southeastern corner of Washington state. And when you think about Seattle, you know, everyone knows Seattle knows, you know, thinks of a dark gray rain, lots of rain and, you know, the grunge music scene and all of that, you know, which are all true. But the thing that happens to all that coastal weather, you know, comes in and and dumps down in Seattle. Well, the Cascade Mountain Range, you know, keeps all that weather there. So it, it doesn't really allow it to pass over into eastern Washington. So as an example, I think it goes from like 140 or 150 inches of annual precipitation in the Cascades. And then like within a matter of a few miles, it goes to like four inches. It turns into basically a desert. I don't remember the exact definition of a desert, but I think it's under like four or under six inches of annual rainfall. And it basically turns into that. And so Walla Walla, that weather basically that isn't allowed to make it over and then anything that does make it over the range rushes east over the, the Columbia Valley and, and into Walla Walla. And we go on Walla Walla on the west side of the valley. We get about six inches of annual precipitation at our estate vineyard McQueen. And then all the way up into the Blue Mountains within the AVA, like where we have Cabernet grown in the Mill Creek area of Walla Walla, there's about 23 inches of annual precipitation. So it's a really cool, dynamic, diverse region where you can get a lot of different 
terroirs to grow different wines in and it's just extremely fun but yeah it's it's funny to break down those stigmas attached to basically what is the <laughs> the seattle culture and you know it is the big city and there's TV shows and movies and whatnot that feature that, but it's certainly not rainy weather here in Walla It's very much hot and dry and beautiful weather most of the year. So, but yeah, Drew Bledsoe, he uh, grew up here in Walla Walla. He, you know, had this great football career, went number one overall in the 1993 NFL draft to the New England Patriots, had, uh, you know, made a number of Pro Bowls, had some passing records. Uh, played 13 years, nine for the Patriots, and then a few for the Bills and the Cowboys. And he retired and launched Doubleback in 2007. So he, you know, I think had seen what his hometown was going through in this little bit of a wine renaissance and change and wanted to be a part of that. And he had, you know, now he grew up, you know, he didn't have a lot of money and, and being in the NFL, he got exposed to great wine and and decided to venture into that. And I remember, you know, I was, I'm younger than Drew is, so I was kind of the the kid that, you know, lived vicariously through his, his NFL career. And, you know, Drew was the kind of the mythical godlike figure that every young boy aspired to be. But I remember, you know, I was a young wine nerd now. And when Drew announced that he was going to start a wine project here, I remember the first, you know, knee jerk reaction was, well, that's great. You know, he's a really good at football, seems like a great guy, but what the hell does he know about making wine? And, you know, you'd seen all these celebrity athlete type projects and, and none of them at the time were really any good. They were all, what well, I've always said, kind of treated like a Nike shoe endorsement, you know, slap your name on the bottle, find some mediocre juice and just try to sell a bunch of it because of who you are. But Drew came out and he wanted to do everything the right way. He wanted to grow a business. He wanted to make great wine. And, you know, he, you know, the first thing he did was buy a piece of bare property and then develop that into, into an estate vineyard. So he did things the right way. The first uh, vintage was a Wine Spectator Top 100 Wine of the World. And we've just had a lot of great success after that. I think because of that, it, it was it was something that I was pretty, pretty happy to be involved with. I think if it had been just a, a, a typical celebrity athlete brand, I, I wouldn't have lasted very long. That's a great story about, I guess, not both of you coming back, but did you leave the Valley um, prior to joining up with Drew and, and then come back as well? to start making wine there or where did your journey take you? Yeah. So I, uh, I had a weird way of getting into wine. I actually started my winery when I was in high school here and my mom, I think would have preferred any other industry outside of alcohol when I was 16 years old. <laughs> so I did that and it was quite frankly, just wanted to try it as a way to make money. You know, I didn't know much about wine when I was that young and didn't come from a wine family. And, um, you know, pretty soon found out that I was pretty good at it. And then it started to really enjoy wine later and did pretty well with that. And at the same time, I was working at Leonetti Cellar, who basically was kind of the founding father of Washington wine, you know, on the high end. And um, just worked my way up from there. That's where Drew and I met. Um, I went down, I worked in Argentina for, in, in 2010, I worked for Paul Hobbs down there at Vina Cobos. And I think, you know, I think that was really what solidified me knowing that I wanted to be in Walla Walla and wanted to make a career there. You know, growing up there, you know, as a kid, before I got into wine, it was, you know, it's a small town. You want to get the hell out of there and you know go to Stanford business school or do whatever you can to get out of the small town. 
And then I think getting into the mining industry and becoming older, you realize how lucky you are to live where you live. And just the wine scene was incredible. You know, I remember thinking, trying to prove it, you know, like, is, is it as good as everyone here says it is, you know? And so, you know, you're researching articles and I remember, you know, one of the things at the time was, you know, like, I remember for a few years, there was like around 10% of spectators top 100 list was always, you know, Washington or very close. And that was kind of like a, you know, to me now, maybe that doesn't matter that much, but back then when I think when I was younger, it was a good kind of a litmus test to, to know that this was a really a truly a world-class wine region where there was a lot of opportunity because it was young. And so, you know, made that commitment and, uh, you know, took the deep dive with Drew and, and it's been a, a really successful run so far. Awesome. Well, first I should have like a small little personal question about your uh, internship where working at Harvest in Argentina. What, what was that like? Was there, I, I worked one vintage a long time ago and I picked Australia because I needed to go Southern hemisphere, but I am not good enough at Spanish. I was worried I was going to like, you know, dump something in the wrong tank. Did you have any of those issues or how was it? Was it a good time? It was definitely a good time. It was great. like Argentina, beautiful place. People were awesome. You know, it was great because like I was in, in college and didn't have any money. So, it was, you know, you could live like a king down there. Um, but it was, it was, uh, it was, I had taken like four years of Spanish. So it's pretty good with Spanish. But what threw me off really was, you know, everything's in liters or, uh, you know, the, it's not mm-hmm. bricks, it's Bowman, just like and Celsius, you know, those things really threw me off for a while. And then also it's just like the nomenclature, like we'll call like a tank, a tank door, you know, a door and they'll say the mouth. And so you're, you know, I remember the first few times you're like, the fuck are they talking about the mouth of the, t-? like what is going on? You know? And so there's just some of those uh, kind of, um, you know, interesting moments, but also cause you know, I lived with uh, two guys from Spain one was actually the winemaker at Alto Bodega, really fun guys. But we went out tasting one weekend and there's guard shacks at every winery. And we were leaving this, I don't remember where we were, but really beautiful winery. We stopped and asked the guard for directions to wherever we were going. And I, I quickly realized, like, I, I couldn't understand what he was saying for whatever reason. And so my Spanish roommate kind of took over and they talked for a little bit and then we moved on. And as soon as we moved on, I asked him, I was like, what the heck did he just say? And my Spanish roommate looked at me, he goes, I have no idea. I was like, thank God, <laughs> not just me. So there's definitely like the, you know, some of that conjugation type of things and just nomenclature too that you get into that are that's challenging, but kind of fun at the same time. When you come back up and you, you know, fast forward to 2007, what does it mean now to be making the state Cabernet um, and you maybe you threw out a word earlier of like high-end Cabernet or high-end wines. Did Drew think about the project from the beginning as uh, an aspirational project? We're going to make a luxury wine. It's going to be high-end. We want it to compete with, you know, cult wines from Napa. And, uh, you know, I know that the style maybe uh, leans more old world and even start to compete with, um, you know, French Cabernet. Like, what does that look like for you guys? Do you, do you think about the projects in that way? Yeah, for sure. You know, Drew, I think one of the reasons that we've gotten along so well is, you know, he retired from the NFL when he's 37 years old or something. And I don't think you can, number one, get to the NFL 
without being extremely competitive. And then two, <laughs> who gets, you know, it's hard to be that way and then retire at, third, at that age. And then myself, I think I was so young, you know, almost insecure about it, just had a big chip on my shoulder, wanted to kick everyone's ass and prove myself. And so I think the two of us, because of that, we're just ultra competitive. And yeah, we definitely saw it that way that, you know, we don't want to be the best Cabernet in Walla Walla. We want to, we don't want to be the best Cabernet in America. We want to be the best Cabernet in the world. And you know, we've always had that mentality of, you know, shoot for the stars and, and see where you land, but also just like constant improvement. You know, we under like, there's no bigger critic of what we do than, than ourselves. And, um, you know, and, and saying you want to be the best is an easy thing to say. And, and also, you know, an ambiguous thing to say, what does that actually mean? And so, yeah, we've definitely thought about it that way from the very beginning and um, still think about it that way to this day. How does Washington and its climate position itself well to make that Cabernet? I, you know, as, as we're thinking about the world's great Cabernets and like Bordeaux, for example, there's so much vintage variation for Napa. You know, they make a, a certain style. What, what makes Walla Walla, you know, a, a perfect place between terroir and climate? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we're on the, if you look like at the latitude of the earth, we're about uh, almost equidistance between Bordeaux and Burgundy. So much higher north, obviously, than Napa, which I think is actually like southern Italy, if you overlay the map. So we have let, like that similar type growing season that Bordeaux does. But like you alluded to the vintage variation that Bordeaux gets, obviously, you know, they're right there on pretty damn close to the, to the coastline was basically a former swamp. And, you know, one of my favorite wine regions in the world, but Washington has that same similar kind of like a graph curve of a growing season. But we have, like we talked about earlier, the Cascade mountain range, that really acts as a buffer to that vintage variation. So we have irrigation that we use in our vineyards because we don't get that much water like Bordeaux does, where a lot of that's dry farmed. And so we can really control things a little bit better. We get the heat because of that also, not quite as much as Napa, but it's still a little bit warmer than Bordeaux. But we also cool down at night and we have these vintages where I think like one of the biggest things that we get so that at the peak of the summer we have an hour extra sunlight during the day than napa does we get you know at the peak of summer so that allows us to catch up and get ripe but what i really enjoy is during the fall when those sunlight hours really start to fall off we don't get overripe. so like i always feel like we get what i would say is like ripe with numbers <laughs> so you know you can get sugar accumulation you get really great acid retention and then you can kind of just wait for flavor to get ripe without going crazy on acids and, and sugars. And I've really enjoyed that about Washington. So a lot of people say, you know, we get the fruit of the new world, but we get the structure of the old world. And generally speaking, I'd say that's like a pretty decent way to explain it to people. That's cool. As I'm almost thinking about it, like those early nights of the cooler fall than the Napa when it starts getting dark earlier it's almost like a, a cold soak where you're like you know you're you're keeping it in there maybe extracting some flavor without having to ramp up with like the uh the heat and the alcohol um, exactly yeah, no. so i'm just thinking <laughs> yeah it's like a 
a wine nerd analogy there. That makes a, t- a ton of sense. I didn't actually think about the latitude in relation to the hours of sunlight when you want it. I think that that's a really interesting point there. And also being able to con- obviously control your the water. And I think also a good point is the lack of moisture in the, in the desert kind of like climate helps with any um, disease pressure too. So you guys are perfectly positioned to not have to use a ton of chemicals or worry about a lot of mildew and, and stuff like that as well. Is that right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's very dry. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, it's a lot easier to farm organically and, and do things the right way and be really soft on your, your farming techniques. Back to the ripening thing, you know, I feel like, especially in these hot vintages that we've seen, a lot of times I feel like people like in Napa or these war, really warm climates are picking because they're not, you know, their sugars are, you know, 30 bricks. And then so they're picking because of numbers rather than flavors. And then they're just making adjustments in tank where, you know, I think we can pick at more balanced numbers and not have to make those adjustments. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And for our listeners, just so you, the, the general rule of thumb is as sugar increases in, in the grape, the percentage of sugar acids tend to tend to go down in a correlated manner. It's not, it's not one-to-one, but it's close. And then bricks, are basically what would you say? It's a little over two bricks percent of alcohol in the final wine. Is that right? So it's like two point three or something. Yeah, pretty close. But there's a little fluctuation there, but yeah. So that that makes a lot of sense, and I think, and then the phenolic ripeness is the the skins and the flavors, rather than just pure. You know, how much alcohol can we get out of these grapes? Do they you know heat up enough? So that's really interesting. That definitely leads into a conversation maybe about how you've seen that climate change over the last 20, 25 years that you've been you know, thinking critically about wine. Um, have you seen those changes and what kind of strategies or tactics have you guys been implementing to make adjustments if you've needed to? And you know, maybe say a little bit more about sustainability, uh, which I know is, is certainly top of mind when you're thinking about making you know, a high quality intentional product. Yeah, for sure. You know, we've seen obviously, you know, really warm vintages over the last few years. You know, it's and the weird thing too is in the last close a little over a decade, we've had two of the warmest vintages on record, but also the coldest vintage on record. So that's always a weird thing to to think about. But in the, you know, in the frame of all of this, especially over the last seven years, we've seen very warm vintages. And the macro level details that we've noticed, like in 2020, was wildfire. I mean, the smoke that was, you know, in 2017 was the first time that I'd gotten nervous from wildfire smoke. And then in 2020, it was really the first time that we actually saw something happen, particularly in the Willamette Valley, where we actually uh, dumped that entire vintage off because of smoke tape. So those things are, obviously happening and extremely frustrating and disconcerting and, you know, another set of (laughs) issues that we have to deal with, with mother nature and farming. The other part of that is it feels like it's gotten more extreme to me where we've also had crazy hot days, you know, and record temperatures, but we've also had like crazy cold days in the winter and we've had, you know, frost issues in the fall and also in the spring. So it's just, it's changing and it just seems like it's been more extreme one uh, a geology professor uh, here at Whitman College is really involved in the wine industry, has a ton of uh, weather stations all over the state and mostly in Walla Walla. And he said that it's not necessarily the highs of the, te- the temperature highs of the day that have changed. It's mostly the lows 
And obviously that affects, you know, how the vine grows also. So we've seen that gradual increase, but it's been super interesting. I know, Billy, you're in uh, Bordeaux. It's been super interesting to see, you know, a place like that is so traditional and so engrossed in certain things and by law, you know, in varietals to adopt new varietals to deal with climate change. But in terms of Walla Walla, you know, like we mentioned earlier, we're still quite a bit cooler than Napa is, even though we're warmer than Bordeaux. So, you know, we do have base in terms of heat to grow into that a little bit, which I'm happy about. But obviously, when we're planting vineyards that are 30, 40, 50 years in mind, we're making sure that we're planting, you know, varietals in the right places, you know, planting Cabernet on the warmer sites because it's a later ripening varietal and planting Merlot on the cooler sites because it's an early, you know, pragmatic approaches like that. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, other things also. Yeah, I think that's really it's important to talk about climate change in the way that it affects farming isn't global warming in every region, right? It's really a, a temperature extremes. So I think calling out that you're seeing more cooling and earlier frost, maybe more intense frost, these kinds of things. I think that really provides a lot of context for folks. And it's something that we've mentioned, I think, talking with several producers. I mean, this the sentiment is so widespread that and, and those changes are so evident. You know, it's just interesting to hear how folks are adjusting. And like you said, depending on the region that you're in, there are things that you can and can't do, but you guys have obviously a little bit more flexibility, right, than <laughs> Bordeaux. Yeah. And it's been super frustrating because you don't know what to expect. You know, from a business perspective, that's obviously challenging to plan for. That's really interesting, Josh. I, I want to pivot a little bit from talking about the process and zoom out maybe and think about just the projects that you guys are working on right now. And certainly want to touch on a new project that you guys have turning up in the Willamette Valley of Pinot Noir project. And just want to hear kind of how you split your time and and where you see your focus lying over the next couple of years. And then even more so, what do you see for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's been extremely exciting, number one, to go down into Willamette and start making wine. We've been doing it for about four years now, which is crazy to think about. This will be our third release year. And it's just been great. Long time, you know, Willamette, my wife and I would go when we were in college. Drew's wife, she's from like Oswego, so very close to the Willamette Valley. They've enjoyed going down there a lot. And it's just been a ton of fun because we used to go down there to kind of enjoy wine country, but not know as many people. So we could kind of get lost down there. And, you know, we just fell in love with the wines and, and the region is so beautiful. And so we started making wine in 2018 for the first technically 2017 we actually made a vintage in 2017 and sold it under a different label as a secret to just to see how it went and to back up a little bit more i actually made uh willamette valley pinot noir from 2011 on um, while i was with the figgins family uh, okay but yeah so we we kind of what well, basically what we approached how we approached it is being fans of the region we just looked at the region and what wines we liked the best very simple very selfish but also you know very authentic and we've always kind of made wines that we really truly enjoy and never have tried to like pander to critics or a certain style we've always just tried to make wines that we really love and that's how we approach Willamette is we you know what was what's your favorite producers what are your favorite single vineyard wines we kind of made a list and then we looked at that 
and boiled it down to a couple of regions. And, you know, one was uh, Ribbon Ridge, which is actually, you know, the smallest AVA in Oregon, tiny little, little area. We found a couple of great vineyards up there. One was actually planted in uh, 1982, which is super fun to work with. And then uh, the Eola Amity Hills was the other one. And just uh, two, so two, you know, great wine regions within the Willamette Valley that we started making wine from. And the first, you know, two uh, releases now have sold out within, you know, like 48 hours and have a waiting list. And it's just been extremely fun. And last year, we closed at the end of the year, we closed on our first uh, piece of property down there, which is in actually in the Eola Amity Hills, which is kind of like it's. It's funny, Willamette Valley is, is very long, but I always think of Eola Amity as kind of the southern tip of the Willamette Valley when it's really almost like the central part of the Willamette Valley. Um, but the wines down there, from what I've seen, are really like, they remind me a lot of our McQueen Vineyard here in Walla Walla, where it's almost like, I hate to make this comparison because this is a bit of a stretch, but hopefully I can illustrate it the right way. But it's almost like uh, like Barolo in a sense, where there's this little bit of great, you know, tannin structures, great acid, but they're put together in a very elegant way. And that's what, what really uh, reminds me, it reminds me of that at our McQueen Vineyard with Cabernet. And then this site really reminds me of that with Pinot Noir and uh, just these elegant wines that have, but they have tannin and they have acid and they're just really, really unique and really cool. <clears throat> and so it's an 80 acre piece of property. It was planted originally in 2008 uh, by uh, Mimi Castile, who's this you know enormous uh, figurehead of regenerative farming and and this these um, you know building these really cool you know ecosystems with of uh, you know sustainability and you know and plants and biodiversity and you know farm animals and you know all of the above and you know no till farming all of that. She started this project herself. And we weren't necessarily serious about buying something, but this came up through conversation that she might be interested and it wasn't for sale or anything. And so we just reached out and, you know, it it worked out really well. We, you know, hit it off with Mimi. She's a really cool person, great family. And uh, everything just kind of checked the box for us. It's a beautiful property. It's got a house on the property that we'd love to turn into a tasting room someday the vineyard itself, like if you're trying to create kind of like a Grand Cru uh, bottling, the vineyard has, you know, multiple clones of Pinot Noir across different soil types, across different aspects to the sun and elevation changes. And it's just this extremely, extremely cool property that we just fell in love with and couldn't pass it up on. And so we took it down and, and made a deal and been, you know, this year will be the first time that we get to farm it ourselves and really take a deep dive into what it, what it really looks like uh, through the lens of the wine. Uh, but we did get to, I secured a few blocks last year, uh, middle of the year and uh, made wine and, and man, the wines are beautiful. It's really what we thought it was so far. And uh, just really excited to really fine tune that. So yeah, the Willamette Valley, I'm going down there tomorrow um, for a couple of days to work with our team and uh, I just, I love going down there and, uh, you know, more and more excited every day about that new project, the Blood Summit Daniels label. How different Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir are and what it's like to be making uh, wines kind of with a similar ethos, right? In terms of the quality that you want to produce, but in very different 
uh, uh, regions with obviously very different varietals um, and, and characteristics of those varietals. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And one we get a lot is, uh, you know, clearly they're different and, and clearly the valleys are different. You know, Walla Walla is hot and dry. Willamette is cooler and, and a little right. bit wetter. And, um, you know, obviously <laughs> Pinot Noir is, you know, it's light colored and, you know, people don't talk about it like they do with these dark, big Cabernets. Um, but what, I, what I've always felt like is it's more of a, it's almost more of like a, a cultural difference in Bordeaux and Burgundy than it is maybe in reality, because I've always felt Cabernet really shows off terroir really well. It's just not as obvious sometimes up front. And Pinot Noir does it, you know, maybe better than, than any, anything else. And so the, I think the leap wasn't as big as I thought it might be to, to make, but at the same time, I think in making Pinot Noir because of the way it is, because it's, you know, very transparent because it's, it's fickle and, and can show faults so easily. I think it's actually made me a better winemaker with Cabernet at the same time. And so the, the balance of that and the, the, you know, the positive aspect, positive aspects of that, you know, relationship also have been more than I expected. And it's been, you know, intellectually just extremely fun and, you know, compartmentalize things and, and then, you know, and don't compartmentalize things and, and, you know, to try to th think outside the box and have, and constantly, you know, push yourself and how you can get better and what are you doing wrong and, and how am I not understanding this and, you know, talking to other winemakers and, and tasting other wines. And um, I think it's just been doing both has been extremely, you know, intellectually fun. If, if I'm just being kind of brutally honest, it's been really cool. Pinot Noir definitely asks you to be more precise, uh, maybe in, in moments uh, that Cabernet just isn't going to. <laughs> so I, I'm sure that I'm sure that provides a lot of um, opportunity to to learn and grow as you're going kind of back and forth between the two. Yeah, for you know, it's funny, you know, here we are, we bring, we actually bring all the Pinot Noir in a refrigerated truck to Walla Walla. Uh, to make the wine. I just trust my team here so much that I like yeah. having it here. And it actually, I think it may, maybe is better for the fruit because, you know, within, you know, seven hours of the fruit being picked, it's chilled down to 45 degrees and we're, we're, you know, sorting it on the sorting table, but awesome. it's really funny in the tank room when you're, you're sitting there and you're beating the shit out of Cabernet and beating it up. And, and then you're, you know, treating the Pinot Noir, you know, like with white glove service, it's just right, a really right. funny, you know, <laughs> left brain, right brain kind of thing and exercise. Yeah. When you think about these projects in two different regions, do, and obviously we're an investment firm and we talk to a lot of collectors and, um, you know, we deal with a lot of cult labels. Do you have that aspiration for these wines of, you know, we want to produce wines that are coveted, that are being sellered for a long time, that are being traded actively by folks, or does that not really come into a calculation when you're thinking about what the projects look like by 10 and 15 years down the line? I think, you know, I think we, we definitely want to make wines that are, you know, you know, special wines that will sell her for a long time. But at the same time, we definitely also want people to enjoy these wines. And uh, what we've always said with Bloods McDaniels is, 
we're really trying to replicate doubleback, but doing it with Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley. And um, I think that, you know, doubleback's been extremely successful and, and pretty highly sought after. And, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've always told our customers, you know, cause I get asked all the time, when should I drink this or should I drink it? Or should I just, you know, keep it away? It's like, there's never a bad time to open a great bottle of wine. And right, who am right. I to tell you to do it or not do it? Because if, you know, like at the end of the day, like our core purpose for our business is to create genuine happiness for our customers and ourselves. And we do that, you know, one of the ways we do that is through these bottles of wine. And so if, if opening a bottle of double back prematurely makes your life better, then that's really great for us. And we appreciate that and totally support it. That makes sense. Are they only available allocation only right now? Or do you guys distribute out into stores at all or restaurants? Uh, double back is about 20% distribution through most, mostly domestically with a few international markets. And then, uh, you know, so mostly allocated through our mailing list. And then right now, Bloodsome McDaniels is completely allocated with a waiting list. So it's, uh, you know, just taking time to make a little bit more wine and, and uh, there's been a lot of demand for it. Awesome. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to circle back on, the Cabernet and terroir notion. I, I think that's something that's interesting to dive into because I, talking to winemakers in Bordeaux or, or Chateau, they're, they're you know, they're going to tout that all day long and there's so many regions here that are, or or there that are um, like right next to each other that, you know, they'll claim they're night and day, you know, just the the different terraces of the soils and the pebbles. Um, you guys are doing single vineyard uh, Cabernets at Doubleback, aren't you? Can you describe, I, I, it's so interesting that you described one as a barolo S style. Is that just kind of higher tannin and S, but like more... Uh, I guess lighter on the palate as opposed to something that might be like bigger and brawny and maybe less elegant. Um, can you just describe like the differences in your, what you've been seeing in terroir and expressing Cabernet? Yeah, totally. And I, you know, it's funny because I think like the market, the market always sees the Chateau, right? So like in Bordeaux, you only talk about the Chateau, whereas in Burgundy, you're talking about the vineyard. And, and it's funny that, that way that I think that's why like the stigma is attached that Cabernet doesn't show off terroir. Cause I, I totally think that's the case. I mean, like our, our McQueen vineyard is on the same hillside as our Bob Healy vineyard. So, you know, they're a quarter mile away and we pick McQueen Cabernet about six weeks after we pick Bob Healy Cabernet and they're totally different wines. Wow. Um, so, and then Cabernet from the, our rocks district um, vineyard Lafour is a totally different wine and then Cabernet out Mill Creek and Cabernet at the estate here at the winery. They're just totally different. But I think like, it's just like a, I feel like it's just a cultural thing that people don't think that way, probably because of, you know, the, the roots of Bordeaux, they think about the Chateau, but I mean, think about the difference in Pouillac and Margot, you know, they're totally different wines. And so, yeah, I think I definitely, I'm a huge believer and always have been that, um, Cabernet shows off terroir really well and, and it just isn't talked about as much as like Pinot Noir Syrah is. Yeah. No, and I, I hadn't really, I mean, I I'd thought about it before as well, but talking to producers while you're here and tasting wines, there's the wines initially are separated by region and then you go and taste within the region and you get back into the Chateau. But since we only know like the, not we only, but the top five first growth kind of are lumped together people forget that they're you know from three different you know 
general areas um, or I guess two, but still the difference to your point between like a Poyak to a Margot to like a, a Pesak, Leonan, they're very noticeable. I think that's um, something people should really kind of explore a little bit more. Um, oh, and and I think you're in Saint Emilion right now. That's a good example too. Like on the on the right bank, because I think you know. If, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a fairly large region, and you know some of the best producers have the best ground, and the wines are just totally different from a lot of a lot of the wine that's actually made in Saint Emilion. Chevel Blanc, for example, you can you know if you go a quarter mile, half mile, one direction, you're in Pomerol, and you're basically near. Petrus, but the wines are completely different. It's it's, exactly. it's kind of interesting. I mean, those are Merlot some, but I mean, yeah, no, I, I think it's really, really interesting to, to think about. And then the the other piece I was going to ask about is just kind of like a popular culture type thing. I ran into, it was a friend of a friend this week and he was back on, you know, he's a little older than me. He was just starting to drink wine when Sideways came out and he grew up <laughs> in Santa Barbara and he's like, I, I grew up in Santa Ynez. I refuse to drink Merlot. And I was like, what? You'll never drink Merlot? And he was like, no. So do you see any trends? There are people like calling for, you know, Cabernet has always been hot. There's Pinot Noir. Are there any other varietals that you've been hearing? Or is that one of the reasons you guys are into Pinot? Or is it just one of your fancies? You know, is that something you're just into? Yeah, I mean, like, we never want to chase a trend for sure. It's not why we got no, but man. If Merlot was the trend, I would love that. I've, I've always, like, you know, I grew up making Merlot at Leonetti. We make, you know, 600 cases of Merlot here at Doubleback. I've always felt like that was such, like, back to, like, the vineyard and the terroir thing. The problem with Merlot was there was a lot of Merlot grown in really shitty places, and it got a bad rap. Like, we just mm-hmm. talked about Petrus and Cheval Blanc. I mean, two of the greatest wines in the world, which are Petrus's all Merlot and Cheval Blanc mostly Merlot so like like I if Merlot came back I would ex- love that because uh, like Merlot grow, even in Walla Walla I don't like Merlot grown on the west side of the valley but I love it grown on the east side of the valley it's a little cooler you know heavier clay content soils and they're just these like like Cabernet's little brother kind of it's like you know furry and just incredible mid-palate wines with crazy fruit and they're just beautiful wines so if you guys make it over here i'd love to taste you through merlot because i think it's totally underrated and has gotten a bad rap and hopefully you know my generation can bring that back (laughs) i would love it yeah i'll be right there with you some of the best wines i've ever had were a merlot when i was working in australia my boss gave me like a 15 year old or 20 year old Merlot that he just didn't want anymore because he only drank Shiraz. Um, <laughs> so, and I opened it with some buddies and it was like by far one of the best. It was like, so the depth of complexity, the richness was still there. It was full of cocoa and the mouthfeel was like, a theory. it was like, it's still one of the, my favorite wines of, of all time. And circling back to my, that my acquaintance's comment, I don't, I, he also mentioned um, he doesn't like, Chianti, but he loves Sangiovese. So I think yeah, he might totally. have had some he might have had some Merlots that he just didn't know were Merlots that he liked. So totally, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh Josh, is is there just in terms of thinking about our, our listeners and anything that you want to share, you know, about what you guys are are working on that you want to kind of leave people with? Um, how you know you kind of noted that there's a waiting list for some of your wines and you know, how can we acquire? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, the best way to reach out is just info at doubleback.com. 
that'll uh, pop you right into our team. And uh, you can inquire about any of the wines through that. And uh, we'll get you set up in the right place. But yeah, bloodsowineestates.com is where all three of our wineries are listed. And, um, you know, we just, we actually yesterday launched tastings for the first time down in our Willamette property. And uh, we're booked now through July. The best thing I, I would always tell people is we would love to have you be here because it's the coolest way to experience the wine and uh, go home with a story and a memory that's attached to the wine. And, um, you know, to be honest, we like to meet people too. We like to meet people that are, that are supporting us and, uh, you know, share some great stories. So, you know, we would love to just have people, you know, our team's really good at pointing you in the right direction, whether it's hotels or airports or restaurants or, you know, other things to do or, or our friends that are making wine in these places too. So, um, you know, reach out and, and come visit us. We would love that. Thanks a lot. I think that have a really great conversation, shared a lot of really interesting things and, you know, just congratulations on success that you guys have seen and, and even just getting to be a part of so many projects that you're excited about and feel like you're really doing your best work. That's exciting place to be. Yeah. And when you guys are down at, um, your vineyard this time that you should visit, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a waterfall down there. I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. Aola Amity is like high on my list. So we went down a couple of years ago and tasted there. And then we went and walked around the waterfall because my girlfriend was into those and it was really pretty. So I'll, you should check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. But yeah, thanks to both of you for having me. This is a, uh... It's been super fun. And it's also been cool to get to know your business a little bit. You know, Billy, I'm a little jealous that you're in Bordeaux right now, but you know, I hope you guys make it out here and come see us and we can do this in person. Thanks so much, Josh. Good. You have a good rest of the week. Thanks, you guys. Cheers. All right. Bye now. Cheers. Bye. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.